Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, the Cannes Film Festival. Film Festival by way of late 20th century music icon and multiple Grammy Award winner Donna Summer and her discovery as part of the Casablanca Records head Neil Bogart biopic, The Spinning Gold, premiering at Cannes. The film stars Justin Timberlake as Bogart and is written and directed by his son Timothy and also starring Taylor Parks as Donna Summer and Ladisi as Gladys Knight. And on the show to talk about the Spinning Gold premiere at Cannes is Vincent Pastor, who plays Big Joey in the film. Pastor will also be talking about his latest movie just opening in theaters, The Birthday Cake, along with his memories of playing Big P on The Sopranos, and we can't say more about that name on the air, and a rather strange experience at the beginning of Pastor's multitude of mobster character actors' career and when he actually was reported as being a criminal because of that, by mistake, off-screen, and why mob movies and shows like The Sopranos have endured and fascinated in the public imagination. First, some classic scenes from The Sopranos, then Vincent Pastor. How are you feeling now? Good. Fine. Back at work. By the time I was a kid, I knew I'd run a family business. What line of work are you in? Waste management consultant. It's a gift from Tony Soprano. Are you in the mafia? This is overdue. Am I in the what? Like my uncle ran it. Like my father ran it. I'd run it. You said you were in waste management. Jimmy says hello from hell, you f- Environment. One of gangland's leaders died late this afternoon. The times have changed. Nobody knows who's running things anymore. Why don't we call this what it is? A shakedown. What do you think Dad does for a living? Waste management. Sometimes you're so naive. That is a power vacuum at the top. Your boys were warned. I run my crew my way. Problems ah. finding good help at the bottom. Oh, is that him? And that would be some coincidence if it wasn't, wouldn't it? And the feds are always there lurking. And believe me, things ain't much better at home. Meadow. You think I got a brain tumor? Well, we're gonna find out. What a bedside manner. I mean, coverages. Kill me now. Take the carving knife and stab me. Here. Here. Now, please. So where does that leave me? Do you feel depressed? 
Bye, Jack. Bye, Jack. It's no better roses. Well, sometimes it is. What are you so afraid's going to happen? I don't know. This is Scarface, final scene. Say hello to my little friend. Hi, and welcome to our show. Thank you. What can you say about your movie, Spinning Gold, that's going to premiere at the Cannes Film Festival? You know, a lot of people say you always play the opposite, but I never play the same guy twice. I'm (laughs) doing a movie right now, I'm playing a gangster, but I run a casino. It's a whole different flavor. It's a different guy. Each each character has their own inner life. So the life of Neil Bogart, Casablanca Records, who discovered Donna Summer, uh, actually, I'm filming tomorrow. Um, it's pretty exciting, and I play a casino uh, a boss in there. And what can you say about how your character came from that interview? That's an interesting story. Well, my manager, Bob McGowan, uh, he called me and he said, uh, I got a movie with you, and uh, they want to talk to you. And um, I went down to Manhattan, I talked to Jimmy and Raul, the writer and the the producer, director, those guys, and uh, they actually gave me a bigger part, uh, which was pretty cool. And, um, And then we went to work. You've been in so many mob movies, so what intrigued you about the birthday cake? Talk about birthday cake, I, I found the role that they wrote for me because they wrote that role for me, you know? And I found the role uh, a very interesting character as a part of that society. He was the guy who spoke for the family. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, he spoke for the family. He wasn't big He wasn't Angelo Ruggiero. He wasn't Big Joey, the guy I'm playing now. He was who he is. You know, he's who he is. In fact, I forgot my character's name. What's his name? Vito. Because <laughs> yeah. Val kept calling me Vinny. Um, Vito, okay. But I was Val's right-hand man, you know? His character's right-hand man. It was a wonderful, wonderful role. But I haven't seen the movie yet. I, I, I plan to see it. Yeah. It's uh, very similar to what's happening with me in this movie I'm doing now. Uh, about Casablanca Records, um, when you, and I teach acting, I have a class today at 5 o'clock, when you have an interview, you don't have the job yet. Whether I'm talking to Guy Ritchie about Revolver or David Chase about Sopranos, you don't have the job yet. You have to convince them that the character they wrote You could play that. You could make that character come to life. But between the writing and the actor, the way he takes his own vision of this character, it becomes sometimes something out of that whole box. And it becomes something that it comes out off the pages. Like uh, uh, like, um, Al Pacino, Michael Corleone. Uh, Jimmy Kahn was going to do that role. Now, if Jimmy Kahn did that role, Jimmy would have did a great job, but it would have been a different Michael Corleone. It wouldn't have been as peaceful and as calm as uh, Al played it. And that's what acting is. Yeah. You know, it's your choices. How are you going to play these people? You know, everybody thinks you just learn your lines, you go to the set and you play it. No. <laughs> you, that's what you have to know. But once you get there, uh, whether it's Jimmy or Timmy or David Chase directing you, uh, you got to take their notes. You can't be like a lot of my students because the students, they get defiant. They say, oh, I don't want to play it that way. Oh, I want to do this instead. You know, you can go all the way around the whole block and you're going to come back to the beginning. Now, there's quite an original cast here for a mob movie. So what was it like working with Ewan McGregor and Val Kilmer on the film? Well, I didn't get the chance to work with Ewan. He shot his stuff uh, um, in L.A. I, uh, yeah. I worked with Val yeah. and Fitchner and uh, Nikki, Joe D'Onofrio and Shiloh um, 
and Johnny. Uh, those are the guys uh, with our crew in Brooklyn. And what was that experience like with Val Kilmer? Well, it was it was good because the way we set it up, it was uh, the holding area was in a church. And the house, we got in a van, we go to the house, and we shot in somebody's house. It wasn't a set. Yeah. So it was very real. Um, you know, we used the whole house, the living room, me coming down the steps, the kitchen, uh, the little foyer in the kitchen. And we would air uh, for a couple of days, but we were in the house. And it was, it was, it was nice because um, Val could go upstairs uh, in between takes and rest. And um, uh, or we fool around. But we seldom went back to the church uh, as a holding area. But we had the churches, so we were blessed. We had the church as a holding area. And what are your most vivid recollections of The Sopranos? And how would you say the show impacted your life and as an actor? Well, my most most vivid memories were the scenes I did with Jimmy and my work with Tony Sirico. I love Tony. And uh, David saw something in the pilot. And he, he wrote these two guys in episode two. Uh, in episode one, we weren't as seen as that close in episode two when we went looking for the guy who stole the kid's car. Um, how it impacted my life is all of a sudden my sister's calling me up, uh, you know, a Sunday night at about 9.20, what's going on next? I said, can I watch the show myself? It, it, it's like everybody starts to catch on little by little by little by little and your life changes uh, for the better. For the better. Yeah. And what do you think it is about mob movies in general and The Sopranos specifically that endures and fascinates in the public imagination? Well, the Western used to be uh, when I grew up, the mob movies of today. There were mob movies back there, you know. Uh, uh, all the Bogart and Jimmy Cagney and George Raft, Evan G. Robinson movies I grew up on. So it was a lot of mob movies back there. I worked on Key Largo with my class, which was the movie with Evan G. Robinson and Humphrey Bogart. Um, but, and the mob movies never died, but I think what's happened with the mob movies, and now that we have television and Netflix and Hulu, and they're all coming out. I'm working on a project with this uh, friend of mine, Willie DeMeo, called Graveshead. It's a series um, that takes place in Brooklyn. Um, people, they want to stay. It's exciting. Uh, they don't know what's going to happen next. Um, it's not just mob movies. It's movies that involve gangsters, whether it's Public Enemy or the story, uh, uh, you know, like Heat, with Val was in Heat. They were in Mafia. Those were gangsters, you know. Uh, and and there's, a, there's, there's a difference between a Mafia movie like The Godfather and Goodfellas and Birthday Cake, which is a total Mafia movie. And it's about revenge, not to give away too much, mm -hmm. but as opposed to, um, you know, some of the uh, stories that come out, which is about gangsters, but it's not about the family, you know. Like I did Revolver for Guy Ritchie. Yeah. My character was not mafia. My character was a he was a uh, a low life con artist who was a gangster. You know, I don't even know if he was a gangster. <laughs> and what can you say about that truth is stranger than fiction experience about one of your first acting roles as a criminal on America Most Wanted while driving a taxi at the same time and the woman in your cab who reported you to the cab company as a criminal working for them after she saw you on the TV show? Yeah, it's a funny story. It's a true story. I was working for a limousine and I was doing my acting and um, I dropped off a lady at the airport uh, from the neighborhood and um, I came back and uh, we wanted to watch, I wanted to watch America's Wanted, Most Wanted because my episode was on, I was playing Tommy Patera, a gangster from Staten Island and after the show was over the phone rang and the woman was uh, in Florida 
because I dropped, I don't know how this happened. I don't know if she called me from Florida. She called the office. She had seen the show, and she said, the guy who dropped me off at the airport's a criminal. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm not a criminal. Okay, thank you so much, Vincent Pastor, for calling into our show. Thank you. God bless you. Bye. Okay. Bye. And the birthday cake is now in release. And coming up next on Arts Express... Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Well, summer is traditionally a time for superhero movies, and while I haven't been attending such since I was a teen, I got to see one of the best superhero movies I've seen in a long time. Only this time, the superhero isn't from the Marvel Comics universe. It's about a real-life hero, Marin Alsop, who struggles against enormous odds to become the first female conductor of a major symphony orchestra in the U.S. It's a wonderful story told by director Bernadette Wegenstein about the world of high-stakes musicianship and the high cost for a woman to succeed in that field. The documentary part of the Tribeca Film Festival is smartly put together with footage of Marin Alsop conducting major orchestras. There's thrilling music, archival footage of her parents and teachers, and most important to me, her own role as mentor and teacher to scores of young people, particularly women who have the passion to follow in Alsop's conductor footsteps. Well, the story really begins at age nine when Marin is taken by her musician parents to a performance of Leonard Bernstein's famous Young People's Concert Series. I remember those from when I was a kid. She's absolutely entranced with the emotionality of Bernstein. He's different from anyone else she has seen before. He breaks the staid rules of classical comportment that Marin was familiar with from her perfectionistic parents. She's already quite an accomplished violinist at this young age, but as soon as she finishes watching Bernstein's performance, she turns to her parents and declares to them, that's what I want to do. And indeed, that wish never left her. With a will and determination that was remarkable, she overcame many obstacles to achieve her goal. The day after that declaration, her father buys her a box of batons. But for the rest of the classical music world, the thought of a woman becoming a conductor, certainly of a major symphony orchestra, was laughable. Her violin teacher at Juilliard tells her, girls can't do that. It's hard to overemphasize just how strong the bars to women in this field were and are. Before 2005, there was not one female conductor of a major symphony orchestra in the US, the United Kingdom, all of South America, or Austria. In 2005, there was a better chance of a woman becoming the leader of a G7 country or becoming a US four-star general than becoming a leader of a major U.S. symphony orchestra. But Marin Alsop was not a woman to hear no. When they wouldn't let her do what she wanted, she invented her own version. When she got rejected from Juilliard and Yale as a conducting student, she put together her own swing band with a group of 14 women who became lifelong companions and supports. When they wouldn't let her lift her baton for classical music, she found a wealthy Japanese businessman who funded a full orchestra for her. And people began to see just how talented and determined she was. When she acquired a residency at Tanglewood, who does she get help from but her old hero, Leonard Bernstein, who declares in puzzlement, when I close my eyes and listen to the orchestra, I can't tell you're a woman. 
But Bernstein is generous with his support and teaching, and he's thrilled as she gains recognition. Well, eventually, Marin gets so much recognition that she's tapped to become the head of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra in 2005. But in this two steps forward, one step backwards biopic, what should have been a celebration in Alsop's career becomes a bitter one. The local papers and music critics, even the New York Times, are printing stories of bitter protest at her taking the podium. Women are too emotional for the job, they say. Well, women are not emotional enough, they say. Oh, nothing wrong with a woman, but not this woman, although no alternates are ever named. And in an awful blow, it comes out that the very musicians who she will be conducting in the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra had signed the letter protesting her taking the position. Well, Alsop does win them over eventually, and they all eventually apologize to her, and the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra and Alsop become more high profile than ever. She starts children's music programs throughout the city and becomes a beloved figure in Baltimore. But after 16 years, Alsop gets a call from the Vienna Radio Symphony Orchestra and leaves the Baltimore Symphony so that now in 2021, believe it or not, the U.S. is once more left without a single woman leading a major U.S. symphony orchestra. It kind of boggles the mind. So it's a feel-good story, but also a feel-angry story. That ending is personally gratifying for Marin Alsop, who deserves every second of her fame and success, but the situation is still substantially the same as when she first broke through 16 years ago. The movie is so well put together, I greatly enjoyed the story, the music, the archival footage of Leonard Bernstein, who hovers constantly in the background of the film like a lucky charm. But what I really love about this film and about Marin Alsop is this. It's clear that someone who went through all that Alsop had to go through to make a career could have well have turned out to be an ass. And I wouldn't have faulted her for it. But instead of being an ass, her experiences and determination and compassion led her to teach other young women and men to open up the path for those who were also told no in their lives. Alsop says, you don't say no to such passionate people. And so she consciously set out to open up a road for others. Wherever she was, she opened up musical workshops, music in the schools, master classes in conducting, all with eager young acolytes as she had been. The kindness that had been shown to her by Bernstein and others is carried on now by her for the next generation. And to me, that is the most moving footage in the film, where she's teaching her students. She tells her students right off the bat, you're all different, and that's what I like about you. I may be the first, but here's to the fourth, fifth, sixth, one hundred. And she tells them what they need to know, the inside stuff, the real work. She corrects one young conductor as he approaches the podium tentatively. Alsop says, when you are conducting, you have to let the audience and orchestra and yourself know that you are approaching it as you would approach a giant bear standing in front of you in the woods. You make yourself big and forceful and strong to scare it off. And to several of her young women, she advises that the dainty baton gestures that are allowed men in sensitive passages would seem too weak for a woman. They already assume you're sensitive, but if you want to indicate strength and force, make a strong fist so that they'll know you mean it. Conducting, Alsop says, is connecting. Her generosity and knowledge is passed down to these students, and hopefully they will be the next ones to follow her up to the podium. Alsop says, we already have an old boys network. We need to create an old girls network. I'm so happy that Bernadette Wegenstein has made this excellent documentary filled with music, struggle, compassion, and hope. Marin Alsop is the subject of The Conductor and is her own marvelous superhero. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller.
And now on Arts Express, the doctor is in. Actor Jocko Sims, alias Dr. Floyd Reynolds, on the recurring TV drama New Amsterdam, checks in with a preview of what may be coming up on the show and the impact of the pandemic as it hopefully winds down on what may be going down on New Amsterdam in the future. Also, what it's been like working side-by-side with real doctors on the show, and how Sims nearly became a doctor himself, but changed his mind and opted for acting instead. Sims also shares his memories of starring with that late great Easy Rider, Dennis Hopper, on Crash, what would most surprise people about the Dennis Hopper he knew, and what it has to do with Sean Penn and billboards on Sunset Boulevard. We call Sims, I'd never seen someone who worked so hard and was so tough for the two years that I was with Dennis Hopper on Crash, and I didn't know he was suffering from prostate cancer. He loved life, and he would show up ready to go. First, some scenes from Crash, then Jocko Sims. Sir, something wrong? Why are you here, Anthony? Why, why are you doing this with me? It's a question I ask myself every day. You're a pain in the ass most of the time. But you're never born. <laughs> well, I already know that. Let's just say that my life without you is nothing but repetition. Broken record of sweeping floors and living low. You offer something else. The unexpected, the unknown. And I worry about you. I don't know why, but I do. Pull over. What? Stop the car. Pull over. What are you doing? You never sit up front. We're equals now, Anthony. I don't need a driver. Even though you're paying me? Correct. I have plenty of money. What I need this time is a friend. You know I made straight A's? My entire time in school, being straight A student, me. I had potential. I had talent. I had ambition, drive. I won a speech contest when I was 15. First in my district. Now I, I was something, Ben. Now what I got? Failed attempts, regrets. I got nothing. Darius has got it all. Who's Darius? Man, you, you don't even listen to a word I say, man. I told you there's someone here I grew up with. Well, I'm sorry if I have other things on my mind tonight. Oh, you always got other stuff on your mind, man. I get it. Your daughter was murdered, and it ripped your world apart. But this experience hasn't changed you. Rehab didn't change you, man. You're still the same self-absorbed bastard you always been. No, no, I'm... I'm staying here with you. You're my friend, Anthony. You're maybe the best friend I have in the world. This is where I need to be. Thanks. Hi. Hi, Prairie. Hi, and welcome. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. All right. We've spoken previously on the show about how this pandemic impacted the dramatic direction, medically speaking, of New Amsterdam. What can you say about how the hopefully winding down currently of the pandemic is influencing the show with the season three finale and heading into season four? Well, I just want to say, Barry, first of all, that I was so impressed with what the writers and producers were able to do. Uh, given that we were living through a pandemic, um, they adjusted. Uh, they 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 spoke about what was going on. They made you think about other issues that were happening simultaneously, and some things that we didn't consider. Um, sort of the mental struggles that maybe our doctors would be going through, and uh, and they didn't hit you over the head with it. You know, we we, we didn't spend every episode talking about the pandemic. Uh, a lot of things still happen in hospitals. Uh, there are people who are pregnant there and who are about to go into labor. There are people who need heart transplants and, and who are uh, possibly suffering with ca- cancer or gunshot wounds. And, and we wanted to be sure to incorporate all of that as well and remind people that these, these heroes or doctors and our nurses 
um, have done just such an extraordinary job in this country and elsewhere uh, to make sure that our hospitals keep moving in the right direction. And what can you say or not about any new and different directions of New Amsterdam Season 4 that are being contemplated? Well, uh, even before we get to Season 4, I can tell you a different direction we're going with my character. is We have the family man, Dr. Reynolds, myself, who, who's been extremely vocal and interested in having a family, uh, a wife uh, and, and kids, and uh, he somehow has seemed to have found himself in a situation with a co-worker who is a married woman. And she has expressed to him that uh, she has an open relationship, and of course he's been completely hesitant uh, with that. So I feel like that alone is a definitely def- a different direction for Dr. Reynolds. And in and, and this season finale, we'll get to, to figure out where that heads from here. And I'm, it's a possibility that you know, we might go into season four with that. And how would you say playing a physician, Dr. Reynolds, for so long has influenced you personally in your own life? It seems almost like a second career for you by now. It's sort of, it's like two dreams come true, uh, Prairie. I wanted to be a doctor. I might have told you this story before. Uh, When I was in high school, I even got a medical symbol on my ring that you can customize. That's how sure I, I felt like something like that would be in my future. And uh, I graduated from high school, and I got to college, and something said that I didn't want to be in school for the next 12 years, so I changed my mind. I took a theater course, fell in love with acting. I had been acting, I think, for about 14 years, and all that time I said I wanted to play a doctor, and I wasn't quite old enough when I first started, and eventually, I think around 2018, uh, this role came along, and I was just so thrilled to have it. And like I said, I feel like I'm... I'm living like two dreams at once. I get to be side-by-side with real doctors and nurses as we're learning, and they're helping us to bring the show to fruition and and make sure that we're doing things correctly, and uh, it's just been fantastic. Now, you were a part of Crash along with Dennis Hopper. What are your memories of Dennis Hopper and working with him? I've never seen someone who worked uh, so hard um, and was so tough. Uh, For the two years... uh, that I was working with him, I didn't know initially that he was uh, suffering from prostate cancer. And he would show up, man, ready, ready to go, and he loved life. I remember uh, between seasons one and two, uh, during the summer, we shot in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but when we were back in L.A., I gave him a call because I was going to have a gathering at my place to watch one of the episodes, one of my favorite ones. And I got him on the phone, and I said, hey, Dennis, I'm, I'm going to have some people over. And he goes, I'm there, man. Where, where is it at? <laughs> and, and I told him, and I tell you, my mom had come over. She had barbecued for all my friends, and I had some family members, and I didn't tell anybody that Dennis Hopper was coming by. He came by, sat in my living room, and, and laughed and enjoyed the show. And he he'd watched an episode that he had already seen, but the guy just wanted to. To, to live and, and enjoy life, and that's my favorite memory of him. And what do you think would most surprise people about the Dennis Hopper you knew? I think what would most surprise people is how much he appreciated what he did. I'll give you another quick example. I remember while we were filming in uh, New Mexico uh, during season one, someone had texted him a picture of a billboard on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, and it was of him in the back of a limo smoking a cigar, and it was really cool. And he was so into it. He was so fascinated. Here at the time, this guy was 73 years old. He had been nominated for Academy Awards. Uh, great, great actor. He's done it all. And he was just smitten with this billboard. And I asked him, I said, wow, that really means a lot to you. And he said, let me tell you something. He directed a movie back in the 80s called Colors. It was a movie about gang violence in Los Angeles. And he wanted Sean Penn to be in the movie. And so he went to Sean, and Sean said, I'll do the movie if I can get a billboard on Sunset. And he said, that's how he got Sean Penn in the movie. He got him a billboard on Sunset. And I thought that story was fascinating. And he had that at the ready when I asked him about it. And from then on, I'd always wanted a billboard on Sunset. So if anything, people would be surprised, and that was just how much he appreciated being able to be worked and adored by family.
And is there anything next for you that you're coming up in or contemplating being up to? Yes, well, uh, we're, we're going to, you know, be on, on, on an episodic where we shoot, uh, so, you know, it was different during the pandemic, but shooting 22 episodes a year, you get only two months off, so it's not much time for me to film other things. But I am writing, and uh, hopefully one of these projects will come to fruition pretty soon, and, and I can talk about, about it then. But the pandemic afforded me some, some time yeah. for me to, to be creative in that arena, and it has been great. And any last word on why people should tune into New Amsterdam and the new season? Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, each year, we have some sort of cliffhanger. Uh, season one, we had the big uh, car accident where we knew one of our characters had died, but we didn't know which one. Season two, we had this whole thing where my character was leaving the hospital, supposedly for good. And then we saw in season three that we don't disappoint. Okay, thank you so much, Jocko Sims, for calling into our show. Hey, Perry, thank you so much for having me. And that was Jocko Sims phoning in. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with Bro on the Art World Beat. Arts Express Paris correspondent Professor Dennis Bro celebrates the provocative political paintings of the late eminent and daring African-American artist Robert Colescott with the Colescott Chronicles expanding black representation while narrowing in on consumerism and colonialism. And Colescott's work that has been described as, quote, art that eats away at empire, with connections to the small screen drama series Lovecraft County and werewolves in Hollywood movies. First, some of those scenes from Lovecraft County, then Dennis Bro, when all will be revealed. Corporate headquarters ended our whites-only policy. Mm. Oh, but there, there are no race crusaders. They're just chasing that mighty dollar. Mm. <laughs> uh, how does assistant manager sound to you? Yes. Yes! <laughs> 14 times over. Yes. Thank you so much. But I don't want to take up any more of your oh, time. don't be silly. It's my job to make sure everyone feels right at home. Welcome to the Marshall Fields family. Uh, shall we take a tour of the store? But first, the ladies' room. Uh, Miss Davenport, you dropped your, uh... Perfume? On your knees, Mr. Manager. Killer, your eyes. Do you like them? Little piggy. If you want it, I can get them. Drop to mix them six months. Whoop, it's breaking as hard as me. I'm the hottest in the street. No, you probably heard of me. I wanted you to know that a nigger did this to you. This is Bro on the Art World Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, The Colescott Chronicles, expanding black representation while narrowing in on consumerism and colonialism. Robert Colescott's satire of Americana, George Washington Carver crossing the Delaware, has now become the centerpiece of LA's new Lucas Museum of American Art. Colescott's best-known work, though, only begins to touch his four major themes and concerns. These are expanding black representation in art while calling attention to the way the culture has been stereotyped in the past, a sharp critique of how the consumer products which shaped and defined him have been adapted and altered by black experience, bringing the black female body in all its manifestations to the foreground while commenting on the exploitation of the female body and art historical ideals of beauty, and finally, a lampooning of the colonial legacy and a sharp cognizance of how that legacy functions in the contemporary neo-colonial world. In the 1970s, Colescott broke free from the depoliticized abstract tradition, the establishment of which is described in my book, Cold War Expressionism, Perverting the Politics of Perception. His goal was, as he put it, to interject blacks into art history. Initially, he did this by creating his own versions of classic works, thus his George Washington Carver, in satirizing one of the most famous images of Americana, has a black chef 
a barefoot fisherman, a banjo strummer, a moonshiner, and a black female performing a sex act on the flag bearer at the center of a boat, which may be about to spring a leak. The painting was called The Most Gleeful and Unbridled Attack on Racist Ideology in His Oeuvre, but it's also a celebration of various forms of black working and underclass activity. His Eat Dem Taters, a parody of Van Gogh's Potato Eaters, is likewise filled with grotesque images of a black family seemingly happy with little, a racist stereotype, but also as well, commemorating black sharecropper life, finding the humanity behind the caricature as Van Gogh's original celebrated the Dutch peasantry. Instant Chicken is a gathering of the racist stereotypes behind the Southern kitchen in a culinary scene dominated by Colonel Sanders with Aunt Jemima applauding Sanders and black cooks framing the composition. The painting reminds us of the southern plantation paternalism behind the supposedly benevolent figure of the colonel. The image had a Sanders snowman delivering chicken to a mixed black and white family and then sacrificing himself as he melted away after securing the delivery. The word the art world used to describe Colescott's antics was appropriation, which somewhat denies the originality of what he was doing, presenting it as a form of theft with the term itself falling into a kind of discriminatory and derogatory label. He partially disdained this label and did not want to be known as a creator who paints art history in blackface. A far better way of looking at what he accomplished would be to say that what he was doing was expanding the possibilities of black representation. His project today is renewed in a variety of places. In the art world, for example, and Carol Walker's recent piece at the Tate London Fawns Americanus, a water fountain, recalling that trope in Western sculpture, which instead of nymphs and sea creatures, displays images using the water motif of the African-European-American transatlantic slave trade in a piece on display in the heart of London, historical center of that trade. Likewise, Lovecraft Country, the HBO series, in one episode appropriates the Wolfman theme from the segregationist period of Hollywood history, where African Americans were locked out of the horror genre. A black woman who's refused a job at a Chicago department store in the 50s makes the horror transformation to a white woman who is then offered a job as a manager at the store. Horror transmutes into the horror of racial inequality. Colescott came to prominence at a time when American consumer goods were circling the globe, defining experience in fashion, leisure, and entertainment. The artist's variegated and complex view of this culture aligns him with earlier observers like Walter Benjamin, who, while a collector himself of the treatise of capitalist production, treating its cast-offs as signals from far-off lands, also was attuned, as Frederick Jameson says in his book on Benjamin, to the way these products which define capitalism's rituals dominate not only our consciousness, but also our sense of time. People think of capitalist crisis as an event, Jameson explains, but for Benjamin, the catastrophe is that it just goes on like this. In 1978's The Wreckage of the Medusa, a sly borrowing from Jericho's Raft of the Medusa, a modern-day ocean liner, a la the Titanic, has crashed. And in the sea are the detritus of society, both humans and objects, all cut into their individual parts, used underwear, trash, beer cans, and body parts, all fragmented in the way consumer society fragments experience. One critic wrote that while Colescott knows that the ship of civilization is sinking, he remains on board. Another way of seeing the gesture, related to the patch over the leaky George Washington Carver boat, is that he is doing his part to ensure society weighted down with its own consumerist garbage rightfully collapses and sinks. Two works with the same subtitle, Down in the Dumps, from 1983, provide diametrically opposed views of this culture. The first, So Long Sweetheart, takes up the motif of depression as Colescott himself at far right, his head in his hands in the tortured image of the thinker, is being left by a naked woman wandering off left. What he is left with are all the objects piled up as if at a dump that may have defined their relationship. The dump is both his depression as well as the collection of objects, bicycles, tires, straw hats, tennis rackets, which are now also defunct. Down in the Dumps 2 is titled Christina's Day Off. In it, a proud black woman fashions her existence out of a similar pile of objects, hot dogs, cakes, a teapot, but smiles with satisfaction at how she is able to create a persona from these cast-offs. Colescott was well aware of the way capitalism discards its useless artifacts, be they workers or objects. 
Sometimes people, when they get to be about 30 years old, find it's time for them to be knocked down, just like buildings, he said. Another of Colescott's preoccupations was the often exploitative presentation in the art world of female bodies in general and the black body in particular, including an awareness of its own participation in that process. Colescott with his thorough grounding in art history, was very cognizant of how a concentration on the white female body necessitated a lack of representation of the black female body. In one work, he has an African woman gazing into a river, a la Narcissus, and seeing her reflection as a blonde pinup queen. Later, in Lay Diamonds Weld, Alabama, he presents all the colors of the spectrum of black and Native American women, from beige to brown to umbers to dark brown, with various hairstyles and styles of dress, yet all being registered through the knowing gaze of the blonde woman sitting comfortably in the corner who addresses the audience directly. The artist's own theory of skin color was that there was no pure black or white, but rather infinite shades of coloration, with the peoples of the earth in close proximity to each other. As he said, the closer you are to Africa, the darker the people are in southern Europe. The closer North Africa is to Europe, the more European people appear. This blending of races was for him the actual reality, rather than the rigid distinctions codified in apartheid societies. He was also keen to put official presentation of pulchritude under the spotlight. In 1976, 76's American Beauty The colorful blonde pageant winner in the foreground with her trophy smiles, but the smile's belied by a background of black and white movie stills, a sort of R. Crumb version of a pornographic film, showing the sexual abuse the contest winner had to put up with to ensure her victory. As a Western artist, Colescott also pointed to his own engagement in this process in his version of Susanna and the Elders from 1983 which has a black and white worker gazing at the blonde Susanna as she is about to exit the shower. In a window in the upper corner of the work, Colescott himself appears, a peeping Tom, who is part of this leering. His placement in the painting suggests Max Ernst's surrealist masterpiece, The Virgin Spanking the Christ Child, where Ernst appears as one of three gentlemen in a peephole, watching a highly sexualized spanking of the bare bottom of the child by Mary. Both point to the way art in general, and religious art in particular, while claiming to be sanctimonious, often simply legitimates voyeurism. Colescott came to prominence in the moment of the overthrowing of the colonial empires, not only in Africa and the Middle East, but also in the remnants of the colonial slave system in the U.S. His work has been described as art that eats away at empire. His 1992 Arabs, the Emir of Izweed, How Wide the Gulf, in the wake of the U.S. Desert Storm operation against Iraq, has a Holly Selassie-type figure in the top half of the painting, a memory of the one African ruler who was not conquered as the Europeans carved up Africa, with the title referring to an archaeological site which unearthed ancient Egyptian culture. In the middle are Arab nationalists struggling to overthrow the colonial U.S. and European oppressor, and below sit two women, chained atop oil cans and a pile of bananas both items coveted by the continual devastation of Arab lands in the region. Colescott's critique, of course, is largely ignored in the West, as can be seen in the midpoint adventure sequence in Wonder Woman 84, where the Israeli Gail Gudeau as Wonder Woman and the American Chris Pine team up to lay waste to an Egyptian caravan, an almost too blatant enactment of the last half decade of power relations in the region. As part of a series entitled Knowledge of the Past is the Key to the Future, in Some Afterthoughts on Discovery, Colescott laid bare North American colonialism as, on the left, a heroic Christopher Columbus gazes off into history, oblivious to the lynchings, skeletons, and main figure of a black worker hobbled by the burden of carrying bales of cotton that make up the center of the work. On the left, a black woman in a dress with a brilliant floral pattern, seeming to absorb this history, strides with pride into her alternative future. Finally, in rejected idea for a drossed chocolate advertisement, Colescott mocks the Dutch fairy tale Hans Christian Andersen type trope as two skaters in typical Dutch dress enjoy the frozen river with only two elements out of kilter. The woman is black, surely an indication of the Dutch wealth, which came largely from the exploitation of Indonesia and its other overseas colonies, and the man is exposing himself, which suggests, or rather accuses, the Dutch of a history of not only pillage but also of rape and their laying waste to their colonies, referred to also in the title 
as we recall that Dutch chocolate is not grown, but only processed in the Netherlands, which profits from its final production, while it's exploiting its growers in the colonies. Colescott's career and concerns show him to be an artist who contested the injunction to put aside all political content in art while greatly expanding the range of expression of black representation. In the end, he helped allow us to reimagine art history and to realign art with its persistent earlier links to an engaged political modernism. In the 1970s and 80s, artists like Colescott restored both formally and narratively the social content to an art which had seen that content outlawed in the conservative 1950s. This is Bro on the Art World Beat, Breaking Glass. And stay tuned for Dennis Bro reporting on location soon from the Cannes Film Festival. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.